2: Hi, I'm Jamie Busson and I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss what shingles actually is with Dr. Christine May. We'll find out about the science behind cannabis with author Dr. Benjamin Kaplan, MD. We'll learn how to decipher online health information with author and public health advocate, Dr. Charles Platkin, PhD. And lastly, we'll discover post-ozempic weight maintenance tips with author Dr. Eric Berg, DC. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Researchers at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology have developed a new tool that can help identify the early warning signs of burnout. If you're facing demands and stress at work that seem to be intractable and you have frequently experienced the following symptoms in recent weeks, it might be a sign that you're on the verge of burning out. Number one, you feel mentally exhausted at work. Number two, you struggle to feel enthusiastic about your job. Number three, you have some trouble concentrating when working. Number four, you sometimes overreact at work without meaning to. It's important to identify the early signs of burnout in order to mitigate the harmful effects. The warning signs are often present before things have gone too far, as long as we manage to identify them. The physical and psychological effects of burnout include cardiovascular disease, pain related to musculoskeletal injuries, sleeping problems, and depression. Organizations can lose talented employees and experience an increase in sickness absence and lost productivity. The burnout assessment tool measures four main groups of risk factors, exhaustion, mental distancing, cognitive impairment, and emotional impairment. Burnout is not really an illness, but a feeling of being mentally or physically exhausted. The body's response to a lasting, demanding situation. I'll be joined by Dr. Christine Palmet in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Question. What's the best way to make sure you're getting the most up-to-date and accurate health and wellness information? Answer. The Tonic newsletter, of course. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. Dr. Christine Palme is a family doctor and runs a busy practice in Midtown Toronto. She has a particular interest in public education and speaks and writes on a wide range of topics with a specific passion for immunization and women's care. Welcome back to the show, doctor. It's been a while. How are you?
3: It's been a moment. Delighted to be back and I am very well.
2: So my understanding is there's a new survey of Canadians over 50 that shows that less than 10% understand the incidence of developing shingles and half are unaware that age is a leading cause of this virus. So I thought it would be helpful to bring you on the show to dispel some myths and educate us all about shingles.
3: Well, obviously public health, uh, we have not done our job because by far the most significant risk factor for uh, developing shingles is age. So much so that Nasi, I call Nasi the Oracle, Nassi has told us as primary care providers that just based on age at 50, we should have a discussion with our patients about being immunized against shingles. Absolutely essential. Uh, There are other risk factors, but aging itself is the most significant. And if I may just expand on that. So I don't have a solution for aging. And I, in fact, don't say age. I say you become a more expensive vintage of wine. (laughs) But whatever term you use, when you age, you also... Typically, gather baggage and that baggage are new diagnoses. You know, I have an aging patient population that's aging with me, and my practice was very different 15 years ago than now. People have diagnoses with asthma, COPD, diabetes, you know, tragically, some cancer cases. Those diagnoses also affect your immune system and put you at risk for developing, um, you know, uh, diseases such as shingles. I include influenza, COVID, the whole gamut as well. And uh, furthermore, many patients are on medications as they age and they accumulate, we call it polypharmacy, a bag full of pills that may further challenge the immune systems. So you can see that as we age, you know, aging itself doesn't happen in isolation, but medically people uh, have quite a different life as decades progress.
2: Oh, I can tell you that is true. Speaking as a man in, in his mid to late 50s. Um for those who don't know, what is shingles and how is it caused?
3: So, uh, when I describe shingles to patients, and everybody knows visually, you know, pictures are worth a thousand words. No. Everybody can sort of think about that rash. But shingles is a reactivation of dormant chickenpox. So, chickenpox never really leaves your system, uh, it lays dormant. So, it takes a bit of a hibernation in uh, your sensory uh, nerve root ganglion. And when you are immuno-challenged, and that could be based on age or you're under stress, you have medications that challenge your immune system, it re-emerges. I call it the Loch Ness Monster that rears its ugly head at the most inopportune times. uh, And that re-emerges, the reactivation, we call it shingles, right? So you actually can't contract shingles. You pass on the herpes virus varicella. Uh, and for people who are not immune to chickenpox, a person with shingles can pass that on. Point being, it's something within yourself that erupts at inconvenient times. And I can tell you that during COVID, which sort of encapsulated stress, psychological, people weren't seeing their doctors, chronic disease management fell by the wayside. There are many people lined up in my uh, at my office door very early in the morning with shingles outbreaks.
2: Why do you think there's so many misconceptions around shingles? Is it is it just... Is it just, uh, there's just so much information out there that we're overwhelmed by it, or or what do you think is going on?
3: People understand the rash, but they may not understand the mechanism of action. They clearly don't understand risk, right? The survey actually pointed that out. Uh, I think that, you know, during the past five years, we've been inundated with infectious disease uh, information. The Optus Me says that's a great thing, information is knowledge. Uh, But it tends to be overwhelming, and you know we have many other vaccines that are available for other infectious diseases, and you know you can have the same conversation to a certain extent about risk factors relating to age with RSV, with COVID, with influenza, with pneumococcal disease. but it uh you know sometimes it's a lot of information to digest and you know there is a bit of vaccine fatigue nobody wants shots in arms all i do is speak about vaccines Uh, i don't love putting shots in arms um but it's absolutely essential you know preventative care is the way to move forward i think during the last news broadcast i sort of said like during covid we only had the option to be reactive Right now, we have the option more calmly, and it's much easier to be proactive. And in my opinion, that's the best form of medicine preventing disease.
2: If people tend to get shingles, you know, in their 50s, if that's sort of the threshold, does it wane? Like, is there a happy ending? Like, if I hit 60 or 70, do I have less chance of shingles? Or or does it continue to be a risk after your 50s?
3: Great question. So the risk of developing shingles increases with each decade of life. Uh, ah. And that's the reality, the risk the risk also of severe shingles increases with each decade in life. So you know, our 70-year-olds are an 80-year-olds, and we have an aging patient population, the silver tsunami in Canada. You know, we have many patients over 70 who are living vibrant lives and trying to do so and are retraveling. Um, you do not develop immunity naturally to shingles. So just because you've had one episode doesn't mean you can't get it another time. It's a question often patients ask. You know, when I'm bringing up the shingles, they say, oh, don't you remember I had shingles five years ago? I say, "Oh, I absolutely remember, but guess what? Uh, you're still susceptible to it. And I think, you know, my overall perspective is, is because we have this aging patient population with access to medical care, you know, our, our older Canadians are still Traveling, they're enjoying relationships, you know. um, People are enjoying their grandchildren if you're fortunate enough to have, you know, little kinders to take care of. And I think my perspective is, is it's actually a gift to be able to ward off any disease. Not much in life is guaranteed. You know, COVID certainly showed us that. But if we have the option to practice preventative medicine, which isn't 100%, nothing in life is 100%, but to minimize the risk of severe disease, that's really important. Um, The other main point that I think gets missed. Uh, so not only the risk of developing shingles, but what happens when you get an episode? And the reality is, is most people have a horrible two to four week time period. It's not fun. You feel awful. The rash is really debilitating. You can't spend time with people you love. Um, but if you develop severe shingles, and if you end up in the hospital, which older patients and patients with other risk factors, you know, COPD, asthma, cardiovascular disease, you know, they don't leave the way they came in. And um, when I counsel patients now about preventative medicine, I say, look, the vaccine is not just for acute disease. It's also to prevent long-term complications. There's a condition called post neuralgia. That's a debilitating neurological pain condition, it robs people of life. Um, there's also a risk of developing a stroke or a heart attack after an acute shingles episode. You know, those patients get treated and they possibly leave not able to return to their homes, needing long-term care, you know, going into an assisted living facility. And, and I think the concept of preserving independence and aging with grace and elegance as much as you can really resonates with my patients and certainly with myself, right? Planning ahead and looking ahead for the next X number years of my life, how am I going to live vibrantly?
2: Agreed. Um... So a vaccine, is this the type of vaccine that I, I know there's two shots when you mm-hmm. get the two shots? Are you done or is this something that you need to boost every now and then?
3: Uh, again, another excellent question. there are a lot of booster questions these days at present. Uh, is actually newer data. We understand that it's two shots still. There's no sense of a third dose. Uh, and in fact, we have robust uh, immune data for 10 years, and mathematical modeling would suggest that we're probably looking at 20 years as well, hoping. Point being, at present is still a two-shot series. Uh, if you're doing shot one, let's call that time zero. Shot two is two to six months after. So there's a big wiggle room. Yep. And in fact, during COVID, we were given permission, you know, to get that second shot up to 12 months after and be happy that there was going to be a good immune response. Obviously, access was an issue.
2: Right. Uh what about fools who only get one shot uh and forget to get the second? Could be speaking about a personal experience.
3: <laughs> well, it happens. You know, COVID kind of put a, a cramp in everybody's schedule. Um, you'd never repeat a series. Just get the second shot as soon as you can. Um, we don't fully know what that means in terms of extension data. Those studies are ongoing, right? Uh, but you generally don't restart a series. Just go in and get as much as, you know, as quickly as you can. And thankfully access, uh, it has opened up, you know, we are administering shots in pharmacies now, uh, in public health clinics. So it's not the old, you know, family doctor's office open Monday to Thursday, closed on Friday because we've gone fishing. If you could fish, yeah, um, you can access these shots uh, elsewhere.
2: You you referenced earlier uh, the herpes virus. Uh, so mm-hmm. if one has shingles, are they contagious?
3: Yeah. So when you you are contagious, but you don't pass shingles on. So you don't pass herpes zoster on. You pass on the varicella, the chickenpox virus. Okay. So when I see my patients who are have an active shingles case. You know one of the things I say is you need to stay away from pregnant patients just in case they don't have immunity to chickenpox. You know, that's a horrendous um, disease to have as a pregnant patient or unimmunized children. You know, in Canada now we immunize against chickenpox, but you know that immunization doesn't happen right away. So for example, a grandparent can't necessarily hold their two month old if they have an active if they have an active shingles infection.
2: Right. My understanding is like the, the rash itself can be quite painful, right? Like it isn't just a rash. Oh, it,
3: no, it's, it's a neurological pain. So as I mentioned, you know, the virus erupts in these nerve cells and it's a burning, searing, laser-like pain. And also your immune system just going crazy. Like you feel systemically unwell, tired, uh, you know, I have some patients that have to take up to four weeks off work, younger patients, because of an episode. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that acute phase is don't worry about it. It is really debilitating and I think worth the argument to get the shot itself, but not the only reason. The long-term complications are also, number one, debilitating, and number two, quite scary.
2: All right. So you mentioned, I, I caught you talking about Justin Bieber, having yes. been rumored having it. And I'm fairly certain he's not in his 50s. So is shingles a thing for people under 50?
3: Absolutely. So there are other risk factors. If you're immunosuppressed, uh, if you're under stress, 100% younger people um, can still develop shingles. The vaccine guidance actually changed. Uh, Health Canada approved the vaccine for patients over 18, so younger than 50, with an immunocompromising condition or who are taking drugs that affected the immune system. It's very vague. We're waiting for NASI to update their guidance, but you know, I have some younger patients who qualify. I certainly don't know what Justin Bieber's medical history is, but I am seeing shingles in younger patients. If you're young and healthy right now, you don't qualify. If you certainly have a diagnosis, as I mentioned, that challenges your immune system, you should definitely talk to your uh, primary care provider about whether you qualify for the vaccine.
2: So presumably, if you've never had chickenpox, you probably aren't susceptible to shingles. Is that correct?
3: So you're hitting the nail on the head with all these questions. Yes. So right now we immunize Canadians and most Canadians choose to be immunized and do get immunized. So in theory, we will have an adult population because immunization started a few decades ago that will become 50 and have less, won't have shingles, right? Yeah. Immunizations aren't 100% Right, so there are breakthrough cases. So guidance would say at present that when those uh, patients become of age, still to vaccinate them. And things are done differently in parts of the world. And you know, Canada is a nation of immigrants. So will shingles go away 100%? No. But eventually that's going to be an interesting sociological study to do. You know, What happens to those children that were vaccinated? Um, of note, and along that thread, we are seeing more shingles now. We name psychological stress, et cetera, COVID, you know, people are aging, more diagnoses, et cetera. Um, but the reality is is You know, when children were not immunized, they'd have chickenpox parties and adults would get constant exposure to the chickenpox virus and their immune systems would get a boost. So that, you know, shingles virus would stay dormant. Pandora's box was closed because we don't have that exposure now as readily because we're immunizing our our babies. You know, we aren't as adults getting that natural boost you could also say, well, then we shouldn't immunize. No, because shingles, shingles can lead to complications and death and hospitalizations and long-term effects. Uh, but, you know, chickenpox can too. And uh, I think that there's a society's, there's a social obligation to protect our youngest.
2: Agreed. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
3: My pleasure and always uh, happy to speak to you about Excellent preventative medicine.
2: That was Dr. Christine Paul May. We have to take a short break, uh, but when we return, we'll discuss the science behind cannabis on the tonic. Attention men over 50. Do you search for restrooms everywhere you go? Wake up several times at night just to go pee again? Are symptoms of a benign and large prostate taking over? Prostate Perform helps reduce the urgency and frequency of pesky pit stops in as little as 7 to 10 days. Available exclusively through natural health food stores. To ensure these products are right for you, always follow label directions. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit
1: OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Dr. Benjamin Kaplan, a leading authority in cannabis medicine, focusing on the groundbreaking impact of cannabis treatments for seniors over 65, is our next guest. Dr. Kaplan is also the authoritative voice behind the doctor-approved cannabis handbook. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you?
4: I'm great. Thanks for having me.
2: So how does cannabis treatments offer sort of something different, a paradigm shift in healthcare for people over 65?
4: Most people as they age, feel the ailments of aging, you know, whether it's rickety bones or depression, frustration, it's sort of the way their body is deteriorating. Um, But most people don't realize that your endocannabinoid tone also wanes as time goes on. Um, Most people don't even know what the endocannabinoid system is. Um, For those listening, we have heard probably about dopamine and, serotonin, noradrenaline, but we haven't heard about the endocannabinoid system, which is equally important. Um, it's actually the most prevalent molecule and receptor binding system in the human body. Hmm. Um, and shockingly, this is not part of standard medical education. So a lot of people don't know because their doctors don't really know. Um, we've heard about cannabis as a plant. We've heard of people consuming cannabis, but we don't know that we're all naturally born with this system. Um, and as time goes on, it, it wanes. So as we get older, these things that affect us all um, can be improved. They're not all fixed. But you know, we know that people who have chronic pain get better, um, and we know the folks who are over 65 tend to have more chronic pain, um, and so they get better more often. Um, so the ailments of aging really impact us all. They're ahead of us all. Um, but most people don't realize that cannabis is a very viable treatment option um, for people to pursue.
2: What does the endocannabinoid system do for us, like naturally? Because it exists in our bodies whether we are ingesting cannabis or not, right?
4: Yeah, we're all born with the endocannabinoid system, um, with a an endocannabinoid system. It's sort of the name of um, compounds that reach every cell in our body as well as receptors. Um, and those help us govern system signaling, so nerve signaling, um, hormone signaling, um, you know, people have called it the sort of balance agent. Um, when there's too much of a certain hormone, it's partly the endocannabinoid system that brings things back into balance. Um, it also happens to affect memory. It impacts the body temperature. It impacts our appetite. Um, it impacts our different arousal states, um, mood, and emotions. Um, so it's very influential in almost every system in the body. Um, but it's not well studied because, in part, we didn't know it existed before the 1980s and 90s. It's it's a relatively recent discovery, although it's certainly not recent in terms of its biology. Um, evolutionarily, this is found in animals north of insects, all, all animals on, on planet Earth.
2: Hmm. If people are taking cannabis, does that throw our natural endocannabinoid system off, or does it augment it?
4: Right, so if we all have this system, right. um, some people are born happy-go-lucky. Right. We know those people. They're always smiling, they're always outgoing, you know, often very touchy and, and emotional. And then we also know the people who we might call uh, to have an endocannabinoid deficiency, the people who are more grumpy, who are more in pain, they're suffering more. Um, medically, we know some of these people as having, you know, really chronic pain syndromes or, or sleep deprivation syndromes. Um, and, you know, we have this sort of collection of, of people and medical illnesses that we don't quite understand and we're not really addressing effectively. Um, And I would argue that, in part, we're not addressing them effectively because we don't know about the endocannabinoid system as well as we should. Um, It simply hasn't been studied. Um, And my sort of role in this big circus is to try to bring attention to the endocannabinoid system with the doctor-approved cannabis handbook. There's a lot that people need to learn about cannabis, and I'm not just talking about the plant. I'm also talking about the endocannabinoid system that we're all born with um, because some people need an extra boost. Some people need maybe less, maybe they're too outgoing, too friendly. You know. <laughs> yeah. But um, in general, we all should know about this. And certainly the medical community um, has been remiss to, to, to help people address this in modern medicine.
2: Okay. But we do know a few things about how cannabis might help us with chronic illness as we age. So, So what can it help us with?
4: Sure. Most people have heard that, oh, cannabis is good for people who have seizures, or it's good for people who have Um, certain crazy rare illnesses, but the truth is cannabis is helpful for almost all ailments, in part because people need good sleep and people are often stressed out in modern culture or they're in pain for one reason or another, Um, and if cannabis, this endocannabinoid system, is touching all these different body parts and organs, you know, it's not shocking to think that we're gonna find people who match well with certain plant products And that match brings them relief or brings them less stress or better sleep. Um, So my job as a clinician really was initially to take all comers and see what people were interested in exploring cannabis because they weren't getting relief in some other fashion. Um, So I'm a traditional board certified family physician. Um, I was a primary care doctor for many years, and I just took a leap into this new, undiscovered, really unrefined field and tried to develop a specialty um, by seeing patients, by reading the literature that's out there. Um, and I've learned since diving in that cannabis is great for people who have mental health issues, people who have headaches, people who are worried about physical pain, um, people who have gastroenterological issues, stomach issues. Um, and the truth is it's, it's good for so much more. Um, we're barely scratching the surface of how this can be helpful, in part because it's, it's a pu- puzzle piece that's been missing for so long. Um, you know we know cancer very well, and we know how to use um, anti-neoplastic agents, these chemotherapy agents, and radiation therapy. But we don't know how the endocannabinoid system naturally fights cancer. Um, and there are people out there who don't have cancer therapy yet still end up conquering their cancers. Um, so how is that understood? Well, through my lens in understanding the endocannabinoid system, I see a path where the body can fight cancers. You know, if we understanding. The endocannabinoid system, if we're augmenting it with some plant materials, um, namely the products that are found in refined cannabis products, there is a pathway where we see eight different methods of action where cannabis can help combat cancers. Um, And I'm, I'm not just talking about helping people feel more comfortable or less nauseous when they're doing chemotherapy. I'm talking about the action of our natural endocannabinoid system and the action of plants that people can consume to help fight their cancers. Um, And that example applies also to things like sleep and things like stress and things like pain.
2: Okay, so when you're talking about cannabis affecting Mm -hmm. those types of issues, are we talking about empirical studies or anecdotal studies? Or are there, for example, lab-tested studies where we can sort of prove chemically and categorically how how the cannabinoids are helping with those issues? So
4: there's... There are many, many different ways of studying the effect of cannabis. Um, there are randomized controlled trials, which is sort of the gold standard of medical study. There are right. also observational trials. There's really, um, I think, 260 or 280,000 studies about cannabis and its different chemical components. Um, there are also, you know, what we call socially anecdotal um, evidence, and that's people telling repeatedly the same story, you know, that, oh, this helped my friend with sleep or that helped my friend with pain. Um, you know, those can be organized in in scientific ways and 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 help feed out um, the baloney from the from from the noise that uh, separate the noise from the fact. Um, but I've also had the privilege of overseeing close to two hundred eighty thousand patients um, in my various jobs through the cannabis industry. Um, I also have an active patient population of over eighteen thousand, um, and I'm recording data. I'm learning from my patients, um, seeing what works for them, what the Routines are that they're using and discovering patterns. Um, and those are the patterns I've published in the doctor approved cannabis handbook so that everybody in the world, not just part of my clinic, can read what's working for people and, and which conditions and what products and what those specific formulations and routines are.
2: So selfishly, I mean, I can tell you anecdotally that for me, even recreational cannabis helps me sleep. OK, so I, I believe you have a believer here in that aspect of it, but do we understand physiologically why that might be the case?
4: Your comment about enjoying cannabis for sleep makes a lot of sense. That's the area where most people find relief with cannabis.
2: Um, it's actually chapter seven of
4: my book, um, and we cover the reasons why. Um, they're still theoretical, um, but there are reproducible patterns that I, that I point to. We know, for example, that some of the major components of cannabis, namely THC and CBD, um, but also many others, bind to muscle tissue. And when those touch muscle tissue, they help the muscles relax. So if you think about a massage helping you feel relaxed enough to get to sleep, there's a lot of sense to think that, well, cannabis will help relax your muscles and help you get to sleep. Um, But there's also another side to cannabis, which is that it helps people unwind. It helps people stop focusing um, on things that might be ruminating through their mind. You know, when I think about um, veterans and PTSD or people who have been through emotional trauma or physical trauma, um, those are very stressful, and oftentimes people report they're thinking about them while they're lying in bed, and they can't stop the thoughts from spinning, except when they turn to cannabis. And when people are consuming cannabis, those ruminative thoughts tend to quiet down, and they can feel a little bit more at ease mentally. Um, so there's a physical component of cannabis that helps people relax. There's an intellectual or cognitive mental aspect of cannabis that helps people relax. And for different people, they sort of gravitate toward different types of cannabis because they match with what their ailments, their concerns really are. Um, so almost organically, naturally, we're having a group of people who tend to, to, to lean on one type of cannabis and different types of people lean on a different type of cannabis. Um, and my job as a scientist is to organize those and to really surface those patterns. You know, what dosages are the dosages which work for sleep or what types of products tend to work for sleep and those are, the, those are the keys that I've left in the Dr. Approved Cannabis Handbook for everybody to read.
2: Very quickly, one last question. Uh, if somebody were interested in picking up your book, wh- where should they go?
4: So the Dr. Approved Cannabis Handbook is sold wherever books are sold. Certainly Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the major bookstores. Um, I also have a website that I've built which people can, can lean on if they don't want to pay for the book but they still want to learn. Um, that's Kaplan Cannabis, C-A-P-L-A-N Cannabis
2: Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
2: That was Dr. Benjamin Kaplan. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss deciphering online health information on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by The Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today.
5: At Pure Encapsulations, Pure isn't just something we are. It's what we do. Clean, simple, goodness. It's a pure process with pure ingredients from start to finish. Each supplement is free from unnecessary additives and many common allergens. Because good starts with nutritional supplements that say what they do and do what they say.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Charles Platkin, PhD, JD, MPH, is a distinguished lecturer at Hunter College in New York City and the former executive director of the Hunter College New York City Food Policy Center. He's also the founder and director of the Center for Food as Medicine, and you can find that at foodmedcenter.org. Additionally, Dr. Placken is a nutrition and public health advocate whose syndicated health, nutrition, and fitness column, The Diet Detective, appears in more than 100 daily newspaper and media outlets. He's also the founder of dietdetective.com which offers more than 700 articles and interviews on nutrition, food, and fitness. Welcome to the show, Charles. How are you?
5: I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show, Jamie. Appreciate it.
2: So you don't know this because this is your first time on, but one of my pet peeves is sort of people getting their information online and it isn't always the best information. We've kind of lost the ability to tell the difference between fact and opinion. So I think you share some of my concerns. So I thought it would be interesting to bring you on the show so we can sort of sift through that. Does that make uh, sense to you?
5: Yeah, it does. In fact, I think that you know so many people are getting their information you know from Doctor Google. We, we we in the uh, behind the scenes public health call it Doctor Google because we think people go there whenever they have any ailments, any sicknesses, any any trepidation about anything related to health, and they go online or they you know they. they Look on in social media, on, on TikTok or, or, um, or Twitter or Instagram. And in fact, you know, I have a really interesting story. I came home one, one day and, and I saw my wife and daughter were drinking chlorophyll and, and making a mixture. And I was in complete disbelief, yeah. and I and I said, "What is going on here? Like, what are you guys doing?" And you know, you have to understand, my background is in nutrition and health. I'm a leading expert around the world. I'm consulted by all kinds of people. And here, my wife and daughter are, are drinking chlorophyll because they saw it on TikTok. Okay, TikTok, no less. Yeah. Um, without any, any information whatsoever. Okay, no empirical evidence is saying that it's going to help their skin. And I was just in, in shock. And that was really what made me start thinking about this in, 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 such, a, in such broad terms and, and how much impact it could have.
2: I think it's sort of like uh, understood, but for somebody who can't wrap their head
5: around it, why do you think it's important that we get good health information? Well, you know, I, I just think that we, you know, some things are counterintuitive. You know, I think that we, we think because we read it, because we, because we hear it, uh, because it's someone we might admire and something else. Uh, meaning they're a celebrity and they're good at acting or they're good at singing that they know information that's related to health because somehow they know something that you don't know. And I think that what happens is is that it could really harm you and it could really do some serious damage. I see, you know, I do a, um, and I think you you know this because I know that you get it. We, I do a weekly uh, research digest news and research digest. So what I do is I curate um, through thousands and thousands of studies and articles each week. And I narrow it down to what I consider the best of the best. And I put it in the newsletter. It's free. We, we have more than 120, I think, less, 127,000 subscribers. and uh, And I see a lot of articles that come up on dietary supplements and how severe, these are studies, not articles, about the severe impact that some of them can have on the body. And, and very severe, meaning hospitalizations or permanent damage and so forth. And dietary supplements, at least in the United States, are not regulated, right? Or at least not regulated as people might think. So that's why I think it's important.
2: You know, you were talking about celebrities, and I I, I think about sort of a famous Simpsons episode where Homer says, you know, oh, celebrities, is there anything they don't know? And that's kind of how I feel about it. (laughs) You don't
5: see me because we're not on TV, but I'm hysterical laughing. Yeah. okay.
2: So let's let's start with the premise that people are, in fact, going online and trying to find out information about their health. Let's talk about some of the ways that they can protect themselves or, or perhaps include some some critical thought into their analysis and not just simply accept what they're reading. So so you say it's important for to know who owns or is responsible for the online content. Why is that?
5: Well because are they selling something and, and, and are they are they trying to get you to do something? is there some financial benefit that they might have um, that uh, and, and something that they're gaining by you listening to what they have to say? So I think it's really important to, to, to look to see, does the website have information, a, an address? Um, who's responsible for that information? Um, does the site have an email address, a phone number? Is it by an organization? Who's behind that organization? I oftentimes, when, when we're curating news um, and information, and I see a website that's providing information that is, um, you know, I think it's somewhat suspect. I'll look to see who's behind it. Who's donating money to this quote unquote non-profit and are they commercial do they have commercial uh, focus um are they trying to are they trying to sell you something so i, I think that you know digging down and, and and digging deep especially when it relates to your health is just immensely you know important so now, and, and there was some more tips if we if we have time
2: well yeah i i i mean let, let's try and be practical so like you know my listeners yeah. are are you know people at home who may have issue health issues you know, like w- without getting, you know, crazy paranoid about how, how deep down you want to delve, like what are, what are some like top line tips that you would give somebody, you know, when they're trying sure. to assess credibility of an online. Yeah, source?
5: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So who owns a site? Like we said, is there an about section or about us? Right. And yeah. there's a detail. I, I oftentimes, I, I look at so many different websites all week long and, you know, I want to know who's behind it. And if it's this generic terminology of about us, uh, I, I'm skeptical. Right. Um, is, it, is it a nonprofit who's funding it? All the things we talked about just before. Does it explain the mission and purpose of of the website? Is there, like I said, is there an address? Um, if you look it up on a search engine, is there a street image? What does it show? Why, why was the website created? I mean, there, there needs to be a purpose, right? What are they gaining from it? Is it educational, corporate? They try to sell a product or service like we t- talked about. Um, are there names behind it? Right. Do they have degrees, MDs? PhDs, uh, NDs, naturopathic doctors, what is their background? And I think that that becomes really critical. Um, And if they don't have, you know, um, you know, not that PhDs and, uh, you know, and degrees are not relevant, are are always relevant and always make it perfect. But I think if they don't have that, there should be a story, right? There should be some story behind it that's credible, relevant, and makes sense. Right. Okay. And they should be that you can look up. Yeah.
2: So, you know, my pet peeve is that we, you know, with all the information that's thrown at us, we've lost the ability or perhaps we've lost the desire to care about whether the information we're getting is factual or whether it's opinion. And my concern is that we don't seem to be able to tell the difference between the two. And that's problematic. Do you share that concern?
5: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, well, I think that, it goes a little deeper is, is that sometimes opinion is presented as, as, as factual, right? right? And I, you know, and, and that it's not really presented as opinion. I, I, I actually respect someone that presents something in opinion, but here's the psychology behind it, right? It's that when we see this kind of information and it supports what we believe it should be, Right, yeah. and I'm speaking esoterically, so so it supports something that we want to believe. Yeah, it's right? a
2: it's a self fulfilling prophecy. We're we're it's, it's an a echo self- chamber.
5: Yes, it, it, right, Jamie. So it's it's something that we think to ourselves wow, this is really, you know, uh, th- this person agrees with me. Yep. And all of a sudden you're, you're, you're myopically in love with their information, with the information and it supports everything you said or, or, or you, you think, and, and you think of the way it should be. So you immediately go, oh, that's the way to do it. You know, I often, you know, you know, my wife, she doesn't have it easy being with me. Um, but she'll say, you know, I'll, I'll get a cut or something will happen. She goes, Oh, do this, this, and this. I go, Oh, you read the research on that, huh? Right. Or you went to medical school and you saw the science on that. Um, And, uh, you know, and until I, you know, and then I'll look for myself and see what the scientific evidence is and see who supports it. And not only going by one opinion or one factual piece of evidence by multiple and multiple sources, not only taking one source. Right. And those sources need to have credibility. Um, maybe it's the, you know, NA, the, the NHS in, in, in England or the NIH or, you know, in, in the United States or the CDC. So, you know, those kinds of things, you know, uh, are relevant to me and are important to, to look for.
2: I suppose another difficult thing to do is to discern, even if you've gone through all those hoops and, and trying to take the time to... Assess the background credibility. Is the credibility of the actual information itself? In other words, is it still timely? Is it current? Is it accurate? How do how do we best go about looking into that?
5: you know, it's funny that you bring that up because dating, like I'll look at sometimes even WebMD, who's which is really you know somewhat of a reliable source. There's no dates on the articles. I find that you know anytime there's no date on anything that I read, I'm very suspicious of, of you know that that. It hasn't been reviewed recently and, and and how old is it? And is it current? And, and information, if you if you again, I'm not plugging my newsletter, I don't make any money from it. I have no commercial funding whatsoever in anything that I do. Um, I solely support, you know, the Center for Food is Medicine. So when when I look at this and I think, okay, what is the what is the latest research showing? And and when I'm looking at research, research is changing weekly. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're not up to date on what the state of the science is, okay. And if an article is not up to date on what the state of the science is, you might be missing some you know, critical key information. That doesn't mean that, you know, if you see, okay, niacin is not good for your heart this week and next week it is good for your heart. And we're asked, you should take us, you know, one aspirin, you know, every day, a small dosage. And then research comes out and says, well, in this study, uh, it says, you know, that it didn't do anything, you know, so there's all those kinds of things. We just did a, we just did a whole report on multivitamins on our, on our website. So when we do a report, it's looking at existing research. We don't try to do our own research. We don't do any of our own research. We'll curate every piece of research has been done. Every article that's been done on multivitamins. And then we kind of put it, put it together and we, you know, it might be 20 pages of links. Okay. And then we, you know, my researcher will then make a conclusion based on everything that they've looked at. So here, multivitamins, I'll be very honest with you. um, Do they help? Well, all the research, you know, when I had this discussion with with my researcher, I said, well, what should I do? Because I take a multivitamin and, I, you know, and I, I stopped for a really long time. And I wonder, should I take a multivitamin? She says, well, all the evidence is showing no, that it doesn't do anything. So I said, well, you know what? I'm going to take it as an insurance policy. I'm going to keep taking it anyway, because I just believe that there are certain nutrients that I may not be getting that I should be. And I want this coverage. Well, I, I must have been three or four weeks later, an article came out. This is just recently, by the way. This just happened. An article came out saying that multivitamins are helpful and they do have an impact in certain... Um, in a certain population. So, you know, there you go. So I think it's important to, to to try to go to reliable sources and make sure that they're up on all the latest research and that they're doing the work so you don't have to. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're very welcome and I really appreciate you
2: having me, Jamie. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Charles Platkin PhD. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss post-Ozempic weight maintenance tips on the tonic. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca.
1: Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson.
2: Author of Amazon bestseller, The Healthy Keto Plan, and known for The Seven Principles of Fat Burning, Dr. Eric Berg is a longtime YouTube influencer with over 28 million subscribers on all of his channels, getting 200 million views per month. For over 30 years, Dr. Berg has experienced a passion to teach and share health-related topics, including healthy keto, along with intermittent fasting as a basic long-term eating plan. He has personally worked with over 40,000 people, including Hollywood top actors, senior U.S. government officials, MDs, top CEOs of prominent corporations, scientists, stay-at-home moms, and high school students on how to use natural methods, nutrition, and the healthy version of the ketogenic diet, uh, which he has trademarked uh, as Healthy Keto. Welcome to the show, Dr. Berg. How are you?
0: Thanks for for being here. I'm looking forward to the show.
2: So lots and lots and lots of North Americans are taking drugs such as Ozempic to help them not necessarily with diabetes, but with weight loss. And with that comes some goals and responsibilities because you can't just rely on the drug. And I thought it would be interesting for you to come on the show so that you could kind of explain what people need to do once they've lost those pounds with Ozempic. Does that sound like a plan? That sounds like a great plan. So why is it important to have a sustainable approach to maintaining weight loss after taking a drug like Ozempic?
0: Well, the drug, unfortunately, doesn't focus on the dietary changes. It's mainly kind of mimicking certain chemicals in the body that get rid of hunger. So you know, when you want to maintain the weight you just lost, uh, now it's going to be a shift to really doing a deep dive into changing your dietary habits so you can actually um, you know, continue to lose weight. The similarity between um, ozembic and the ketogenic diet is that you, you do lose your appetite. So the appetite goes away, which makes it easier. So that's beneficial. But if you're going to maintain the weight, you better start to really look at the macronutrients, especially your proteins, because a lot of people that lose weight on ozembic, they lose fat, but they also lose muscle mass. So they better be increasing more protein to compensate for any loss of muscle that they went through.
2: I think it's really ironic, and I don't mean this to be judgmental, but a lot of the people who take Ozempic for weight loss are probably in the boat they are in because they weren't eating healthy and they weren't exercising and making all the lifestyle choices which led them to perhaps be obese, and now they're taking this drug that has helped them overcome that hurdle and they have to kind of do the things that they probably weren't doing before. So, uh, you know, I, I'm yes. cu- I, I'm kind of curious in the long run how this is going to play out. What would you, what do you think from a nutritional aspect should be the focus? You mentioned protein. Do you want to talk about that, that a bit, and, and yeah. perhaps what else they should be focusing in on?
0: Yeah, because my, my, my whole philosophy is to you know um, people want to lose weight to get healthy, but you really have to get healthy to be able to lose and then maintain that weight. Yeah. So as you're you're going on this diet, um, it better be filled with nutrients. The key nutrients for someone that just lost weight or is trying to lose weight is you want to make sure you have the protein. You want to make sure you have electrolytes, including sea salt. That's really important. When a lot of people, if they're low on salt, they're going to feel weak and tired, especially if they're on the, a low carb diet. And then, of course, you have the B vitamin. So, So if you have a diet that includes all that, you're going to be good to go. But I mean, think about so many diets that just our um, packaged foods, and they might lose weight, but they don't really, they're not getting healthier as they lose weight. They, they don't look healthy, they look kind of ragged. So, yeah, those are some key points.
2: So, I, I think you sort of mentioned it briefly before, but you see the keto diet as being sort of very helpful in maintaining the weight loss that results from Ozempic. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit?
0: Well, the very reason why Ozumbic, uh works for people, because it does work, because it helps you maintain your blood sugars. Well, that's what's similar about the keto. The keto goes right after that blood sugar, but not artificially, but it does it uh, directly. So you're going to lower your blood sugars. You're going to correct the actual reason why you're overweight in the first place. So it's it's the exact thing people need, you know, they should have done even before right. they started the diet. You know, so you get on that keto and... um you know, now you can actually correct the real problem.
2: So I'll tell you, like we, we, we've had a lot of guests on the show who espouse the keto diet. I can't argue against the fact that it can work, but I think one of the problems with it is I think it's a challenge to maintain. Do you want to address that?
0: It is a, it is a challenge. Um, I tell you, you know, most people will stick with it because they feel so much better and it's work. But yeah, so that means staying away from carbs. Well, guess what? You have holidays, you got Events you get you go to the grocery store it's just it's in your face 24 seven so uh, I think it's uh, I do a lot of education so i um I get people to start reading ingredients we'd get people alternatives to the junk food so they have recipes that they can have similar things like you can have a healthy version of the pizza or mac and cheese so that way it makes it more interesting but but I think over time once you get to this whole new level of health then you don't necessarily have to be as strict because now you have the ability to go off here and there um, because you can bounce right back because you're healthy now and you can handle it. You're more flexible with your metabolism. I
2: I mean, a lot of the people who I've who, you know, who I know who are on the keto diet, I mean, they go off and on it, right? I mean, it's really hard to do indefinitely. And and I think it's probably even recommended that you you take a break from it every now and then because uh, ketogenesis, you know, it, 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 it affects your body very directly, right? Like there are are major changes that happen to the way you metabolize it when you're on the keto
0: diet. I think it's important to go off of it because that way you could actually really compare to see what it feels like when you're not on it, and then you can go back on it until the point where you're like, okay, I think I decided that I'm going to stick on it because I feel so much better. So, I think it's important to go off it and play around with it and see what works for you. But um, the point is that um, you know when you start doing a diet if it's a higher carb diet it's going to be really hard because you're always going to be craving the wrong things. So, at least with keto, your appetite goes away.
2: Another lifestyle choice that you you recommend as I understand it is intermittent fasting. And I will say I know that a lot of people get tremendous results with intermittent fasting, but it also has some drawbacks as well. But you do you want to explain a little bit about, you know, what how you feel about intermittent fasting and how it fits into this?
0: I think it's even more important than the diet because think about uh, we normally eat like every hour and a half, and every time you eat, you trigger insulin. So right. now it's, it's it's like now we're going to actually develop a problem. So um, I think the combination is is awesome. Uh, it works. It, it speeds things up. But I will say, if you start doing it too fast and you don't gradually work up to it, uh, then you know if you're low on nutrition, especially like electrolytes, you can feel a little lightheaded, dizzy. So I always suggest you start with maybe eliminating your breakfast, and then you you start with two meals a day, and you do that for a period of time until you get comfortable, and then gradually do it, not quickly. We don't want people to faint, but over time, you'll you'll get better and better at it.
2: Okay, so there are different types of intermittent fasting. Are you sort of like the yeah. 16-8 guy? Are you the five days on, two days off type of guy? Or, or do you not really care any intermittent fasting? Orders?
0: No, I think... I think um, you know this whole on-off, on-off every other day. That's that's bad because you never really adapt. I think, I think a, a comfortable range for most people is to fast for 16 or 18 hours. So basically, you're eating at roughly about noon, and then you're eating at uh, six uh, in the afternoon. So that that seems to be the average for most people. But as we age, and um, you know we need we don't need as much food, and I think. The majority of people that are struggling with more weight need to do what's called OMAD, one meal a day, and you got to work up to it. But, you know, just think about how much time you'll save not having to worry about cooking and cleaning dishes and then also the money you'll save, too, because you're basically eating just one meal a day.
2: Okay. You know, I have some friends who are using Ozempic as a weight loss tool, and for them it's become incredibly important that they up their weight training – because of the muscle loss that you mentioned before. Do you want to talk about that for a quick sec and also some other lifestyle choices that you would recommend?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to um, do two things. One is uh, maintain your muscle through enough protein because the problem when you lose your appetite, people don't consume enough protein. So you really have to get enough protein to to maintain the muscle mass plus the exercise. Those two are crucial if you're on the drug. And then as far as lifestyle changes, it's like you want to Get to sleep earlier, you know, and try to get that seven and a half to eight hours. Um, you want people to, to not sit in front of the computer all day long. You want to get out there and take long walks and really work on, you know, I like hobbies and also physical physical work around the house. But that's even better than exercise for stress. So those are just a couple little things that I'd recommend for people um, in addition to staying on that low carb and then doing the intermittent fasting. That seems to work.
2: Fantastic. One last quick question, and that is if people are interested in learning more about your theories, where should they go?
0: If you just type drberg.com on the YouTube channel um, or even on the website, you'll you'll find me. I'm all over the place on social media, but drberg.com is the website.
2: Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Christine Paul May, Dr. Benjamin Kaplan, Dr. Charles Platkin, and Dr. Eric Berg. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For more timely, up-to-date, and accurate health and wellness information, subscribe to The Tonic Newsletter. Now distributed once a week, The Tonic Newsletter with content curated personally by me, will keep you in the loop. There's contest prizes, insider scoops, and so much more. Visit www.thetonic.ca and sign up today. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week.